0: This episode of a MedTalk podcast is brought to you by European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, a publication covering the entire supply chain of pharmaceutical manufacturing. Subscribe now at epmmagazine.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the MedTalk podcast, the podcast that brings you the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News, and I'm joined by my colleague, the editor of European Pharmaceutical Manufacturer, Rhys Armstrong. Rhys, it's been another another week of just wow.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all going on again in the world of life sciences and particularly COVID-19, obviously, it's, all, it's always going to be the big story.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a big story for me as well. Having my jab this week,
0: you did. How did? Um, do you want to tell our listeners how that went?
1: I fainted after eight minutes in the waiting room.
0: <laughs> oh no!
1: I mean, I, I, I was I was just sitting there nicely, and I just felt this wave up, up, come over me, and then the next second there was a nurse looking over me, just saying, "Are you all right?" <laughs>
0: Which is quite an ironic question when you've just fainted.
1: And I've got a massive bruise on my head, so yeah, I'm I'm absolutely fine. No, no, in all seriousness, you were brilliant, and uh, God bless the NHS, <laughs> that's all I can say. Yeah,
0: and you, you've had your first door now, so you, you can't complain too much.
1: No, I can't, and side effects weren't so bad either, and I think I'm one of the lucky ones there by the sounds of it. Just a bit of a sore arm.
0: That's quite good. Yeah, I've, I've heard of people who have been sort of just bed-bound by for a couple of days, just with flu, flu-like symptoms, but it must just depend on, on the person, right?
1: Yeah, I think it also depends on the kind of jab you have. I mean, I had Pfizer, so uh, right. lot what we've heard about Pfizer, it tends to be that the, uh, the first jab isn't so bad in terms of its, its side effects. It just tends to be the sore arm, and mm-hmm. that's pretty consistent with what I had anyway. Oh, well. But enough about me. And uh so so yeah, sore head. Yeah. Sore head <laughs> was half self-inflicted. <laughs> but uh, enough about me. Let's get on to the wider pandemic news. Yeah. Um, after all that positivity that we've had about the UK, um, the Indian variants are probably giving us concern to grit our teeth. Um, the variant known as B one six one seven point two. It's it's interesting because the uh, they've highlighted areas such as uh, Blackburn, Bolton, certain areas in uh, in London as well. Um, it and the. It seems to be a case of the surge vaccination going on in these areas as opposed to uh, as well as surge testing and on top of that, it's it, that, if any kind of small uptick that we're actually seeing in cases at the moment does seem to be spurred on by the Indian variant.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think if we look at some data um, from the uh, the Sanger Institute, you can see it's only up until the eighth of May, but you can see the Indian variant rising uh, quite considerably throughout the UK and um, within that time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> as of the eighth of May, I think it accounted for twenty percent of the the COVID nineteen cases within the UK, and the, the majority of your other cases are from the Kent variant, which we uh, which we saw obviously surge at uh, end, end of last year middle of middle of last year so any uptick in in a different variant is obviously big concern especially for the government who you know not had the best track record of um handling these type of things very well i know we're we're seeing now a little bit of concern about whether we should be going on our summer holidays and a little bit of um let's call it miscommunication by certain government advisors on whether or not we should be looking Toward ending the uh, the current restrictions by what June twenty first is it?
1: Yeah, twenty first of June. I mean, don't get me started on red, yellow, and amber countries, or, or yeah. yeah, red, amber, and green rather. There you go. Even I miscommunicated. At the uh, moment, that we're in
0: quite a good place. Um. So really, now it's just you know, to use a bit of a cliched term, button down the hatches and uh, hopefully get this under control before before it gets out of hand, if that is a possibility.
1: Yeah, there's all, there's all sorts of mixed messages in terms of you can go to the Algarve. And then I, I think I saw uh, what one minister was quoted saying that go, going on holiday is dangerous. So yeah. please sort that out. It'd be quite nice for uh, the public to have some clarity. It'd be quite nice for us not to uh, you know, walk into a third wave, even when there's vaccinations, uh, that, that, that even when large po- parts of the population have been vaccinated, because... God knows if they'll be effective if you uh bring it on a third wave. Um I mean I could even talk about the Channel Four Dispatches documentary, but we might save that for later. Uh but
0: uh, I, think, I think a few of the manufacturers have said they think they believe, or at least Matt Hancock has said he believes the vaccines are effective against the uh, Indian variant.
1: Yeah, I mean we'll we'll have to keep an eye on this over the course of the next few weeks because I've got the uh the UK's data in front of me. And uh, the latest data provided up until the 20th of May, we're recording on the 21st uh, for all those listening. So it suggests that cases week on week are up 0.2%, which is that's probably not that's probably a negligible figure in one sense, in terms of I think they actually expect this current rate of infection, if this is to last all the way through the summer and then into the autumn, there'll be pretty comfortable with that but i think the it's down 11 percent in terms of patients admitted to hospital and deaths within the 28 days of a positive test that they're, they're down as they're down 26.5 percent as well so in that sense the, the, those two areas um if if they end up going into the red significantly in the next uh, in the next three weeks then it's then it becomes an issue and then it becomes a real a real test of we can't just vaccinate our way out of this Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think those figures there are quite quite positive, really. I, I I would have thought with the sort of the loosening of restrictions we, we we've seen so far, you know, being allowed to meet up with with more people outdoors, a lot more people going to the pub and stuff now. Now, even even if it is sort of managed out, outdoors, um, yeah, I thought that figure would be a little bit higher, to be honest. Yeah, well, um,
1: it's, it's good news that it that it isn't, and um, yeah. and. Uh, so far, I think yeah, the, June the 21st does look like the likely date for a return of some semblance of normality. Uh, I'm just going to have a look at the uh, the CNN chart now where we've got vaccinations around the world. and th- This tends to be a little behind on a couple of things, but I think it's noticeable now. Ha- we're seeing lots and lots of... Certainly the EU member states, they're, they're sort of in the act out right now. Um, uh, I think Germany's at 52 doses per 100 of the population. We The UK, by the way, for you, for your references, at 86. Um, we're about, mm-hmm. And we're at 70% of the adult population has received its first dose. So the UK's still going great guns after a lumpy, a, a lumpy spell on supply. Um, but yeah, it appears that everybody else is catching up now. Everybody else is actually getting their act together. And, you know, that that's that's the best news, really. If everyone's vaccinated, there's, hopefully, little chance of us having to live through a third lockdown and a fierce wave yet again.
0: Yeah, of course. I will add a little caveat there in seeing that it's mostly the well-developed countries who, have, who are starting to see the, um, the uptake in, in vaccinations we've still got a bit of a long way to go globally but we are seeing the, the more developed nations and um, beginning to get their vaccinations in order
1: yeah i mean you've actually uh, mentioned this on the agenda and i know it's a little lower down the agenda but we may as well come on to it now because you are yeah. since the, you, you've nicely segued onto it for us only 0.3 percent of covid vaccines are going to poor nations according to the world health organization um I actually tried to have a look at this COVID tracker, but uh, unfortunately, my uh, <laughs> my internet had decided not to show it to me. my antivirus decided it was a dangerous site. So, can you tell us okay. all about it, please?
0: <laughs> um, yeah. So that story comes from uh, Dr. Tedris, the Director General of the World Health Organization, who, in a, um, a media briefing on the 14th of May, I believe, um, just warned about the you know the, the rise of vaccine nationalism, which which we've seen and which we've spoken about at length. So I don't want to go into too much of that. Um, but what he has said is that this dependence on wealthier countries handing over vaccines to poorer countries and developing nations um, isn't working. This trickle-down effect um, has only resulted in 0.3% of the current vaccine supply going to poorer nations and developed nations. And um, there's a really interesting Graphic which you can view on uh, launchandscalefaster.org, which is um, it's about the current procurement um, deals of COVID-19 vaccine uh, country by country, and it really sort of it, it indicates what Dr. Tedros is, is going on, on about, really, and um, because if you look at the current say from from May 2021, and you can look at all the vaccine deals which have taken place, and um, it gives a really quite stark overview of just how much that uh, vac- how many vaccines have been procured by the likes of the UK the EU and um, the US and Canada you know of all these rich nations so just for instance um Canada has bought enough COVID-19 doses to vaccinate 493% of its population Wow. and um, comp- compare with us with the UK the UK has bought enough to vaccinate four hundred and nine percent of its population. The US is half that, with only around about two hundred percent of its population. But you know, um places like India where we're seeing massive struggle right now, um, they've only got enough doses. And considering that the Serum Institute of India is currently producing COVID nineteen vaccines, um, they've only got enough to cover fourteen percent of their population. So we're seeing stark differences um between the um prosperity between nations and the fact that you know before this was really kicking off we were already getting pre-purchase um, agreements between major pharmaceutical players and um and you know the likes of the UK and the, in the in the EU of in the US um and I, I write about this you know my latest editor's desk and I you know I argue the fact that yes you can say that well that's unfortunately just how capitalism works pharmaceutical companies are at right to seek um, seek paybacks for you know the, the costly r and d that they've undertaken. Um, there are other arguments out of outside of that the fact that AstraZeneca vaccine was largely funded by the public and you know government grants and stuff like that and um, which come into play during this but just overall the fact that the system isn't really geared for a global vaccine procurement strategy. You know, and that's why we're seeing these vast differences um, around the globe.
1: I'm glad you mentioned the AstraZeneca thing because you know it's fair to say that while there is, um, um, how can I put this politely? At least AstraZeneca have been good enough in in terms of the cost that they're passing on. They're literally selling this at cost.
0: Yeah, yeah, they um, they are. I know there's a few arguments saying that once the vac- once the pandemic is declared over, which it could be by June 2021 when the WHO declares it, not that they are going to declare it, but that's some of the earliest dates I've seen kicking about, um, then they can begin selling it at cost, um, you know, at, 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 at profit, sorry. Um, so it's not set in stone there, but are some caveats in terms of AstraZeneca's deal there. Um, Oxford University have also seen that um, they didn't really have to partner with AstraZeneca. They, they were going to make it into a, um, a public IP sort of project, but then AstraZeneca wanted, wanted that deal, which sort of makes sense because you'd rather partner with a major pharmaceutical company who has the infrastructure to develop all the vaccines and develop your IP, especially in times of you know a global pandemic when if they have the best infrastructure to get it out to patients, then it makes sense. Um, but yeah, just there's a few arguments floating around. I'm trying to stay as unbiased as this on on this as possible, um, because you can sort of st- I think you you can stray the line and, and see both sides of the argument that people people see. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, especially you know how you know how you gauge your profitability in terms of, of of lives lost as well. And ultimately, I do believe pharmaceutical companies are in it for the overall good of 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 patients. You know, I don't think that there's any. Sinister plot at at hand. I just think it's, I think it's more of the overall markets issue that needs to be resolved, or need, or at least needs to be looked at from potentially a governmental perspective as well.
1: Given that you've mentioned that, I'm going, I'm going to mix up the agenda again because you actually uh, touched upon something else that we're going to come onto, and that's the U.S. waiver of yeah. a certain far farmer patterns because. Uh, one of the things that was really stark about this when I saw the news come out was the share prices. And <laughs> you actually just had this basically do you remember Ed Conway on Sky News after the Sunderland vote in the EU referendum? It was it was not a dissimilar graph to that when when you showed the pound against the dollar. It was yeah. just a steep trend down.
0: <laughs> yeah, it definitely um the the share's definitely shot down. I think Madonna took a big a big hit on that on that dear Um I think overall, if you look at the, the um, how much the shares have risen, it's it's quite it's not that tangible of of a dip overall since you know they got onto the since since they announced uh, their COVID nineteen vaccine, Are you so their shares, you the, the
1: share price was oversaturated to begin with.
0: Well, potentially, you know, it might have had it. You know, it's it's obviously skyrocketed since um, they came onto the market and got their vaccine vaccine out. So, I think the dip when the waiver was announced, um. Makes makes a lot of sense, but maybe isn't that impactful as, as some people might might see it. Just you know, taken on on that, on that day compared to how well the company's doing right now.
1: Yeah, I think I just uh, I, I just like the start graph just showing it. it, was, it oh was, yeah, it was it was quite it was quite, quite a lot when you
0: said it. But also, you know, that speaks into the argument about why, at least from from the profit angle of it, uh, why pharmaceutical companies aren't particularly keen to do it. I haven't looked into this enough to comment on it massively what i do understand is there is a bit of trepidation that you know if we're saying yes you can share this ip to companies it's now public knowledge essentially you know why would a company in the future want to risk that happening if they're not going to get the return on investment they require
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um i understand it from that sense i also understand that you know this is a little bit of a different time than regular drug development and measures need to be made to get a vaccine, um, you know, across the world essentially to yes. everybody who needs it. So a lot of gray areas, I think. I think you can you can understand where some people are coming from. You can obviously understand the, the need to, to, to make these um, IP available to other co- companies who can manufacture them and help out.
1: Yeah, um, we'll just stay on vaccines for one moment because um, I think we actually talked about um, vaccine side effects. I apologise at the moment. I have a young cat in the room and he is currently nibbling at my ankles. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apologies if I'm struggling to get my words out here, everybody. Um, but yeah, there was an interesting release that came through where it suggests that given that some of the side effects of that have been reported, are, are, are affecting adherence adversely. Um, is this something that you buy? Well,
0: it, it adherence in, in the fact that they need to go and get their second dose.
1: Yeah. I'm just trying to find the release now, actually.
0: So I, I haven't heard of that. Um, that would be monumentally stupid on, on, part, <laughs> of the, on the part of the vaccinated person who decides not to get their second dose because they felt a little bit under the weather, right?
1: Yeah, I mean... I was aware that I might feel a little bit ill after the first one, so it, 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 it's, the, it's the small price you pay for the uh, for the brighter future.
0: Well, yeah, of course. I mean, if you, like I haven't had one yet, so I, I, I can't, can't really comment on how I, I'd feel. But I, I can't imagine myself, you know, being like, "Oh, that was that was so bad that I'm not going to get the second dose and protect myself from a disease which has killed millions of people."
1: Yeah. <laughs> It just, well, we've seen all sorts of throughout this, all sorts of theories as well, off the back of it, you know, attached to the entire new era of fake news that this probably shouldn't come as a surprise. Global efforts to stop the spread of COVID 19 undermined by vaccine side effect concerns. This is a suppressed release that we got on the 20th and said that more than 72% of physicians surveyed said that patients continue to voice concerns over vaccine side effects. Still, others have reported ongoing misinformation discouraging people from getting vaccines. In addition, close to thirty percent of physicians reported encountering patients who have skipped their second dose due to unpleasant side effects of the first dose or concerns over side effects.
0: The uh, interesting in seeing how many patients that is,
1: though. Okay, but if we were actually to sa- take that extrapolate that sample of thirty percent, is a significant chunk. It's not mm. so. Um, the it, this is CERMO's COVID-19 real-time barometer. It showed that half of physicians report that patients have requested a specific vaccine with a clear preference for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. As 78% of physicians indicated it's the most requested and Moderna following a distant second was 7%. In Europe, almost 93% of physicians reported Pfizer-BioNTech was the most requested. Why do you think that is?
0: Um, well, AstraZeneca's had the side effects report, huh, right? In the I mean, new it was, it
1: was one of the first out of the gate as well, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. Um, and there's been less sort of hypothetical negative press around that around vaccine.
1: Um, I'm a little uh, struck that Moderna's so low, though. Is that is that just because they, they followed so late, or...?
0: Um, it might have been regulatory approval dates as well. I can't remember if there's been... I can't remember if Madonna were uh, in the US first or not.
1: Yes, they must have been because they went in the US first and they came of. Uh, their first shot was a minister over here in April, I think.
0: Right, yeah, so I think it would just be the case of the fact that Pfizer's been the most available, in, in the UK at least, you know.
1: But they're, they're, certainly, uh, they're certainly trends to watch. Um, I will not completely discount them, even though, you know, we, we don't entirely know the, the, the sample of. That has been surveyed there, but I think it's a really interesting one to flag.
0: Um, Just from my faith in the human human race itself, it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you and me both. Um, but yeah, let's uh, move on from the vaccine side of things, because I think we actually have an interesting uh, announcement from the government today. As Prime Minister Boris Johnson has. What is it he's announced again? He's announced a. Let me think. A plan for a global pandemic radar. Do you want to tell us more about this?
0: Well, considering you sent me the news about half an hour ago, I can uh, I can try. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not not too clued up on this one, to be fair, Ian. But
1: oh my, because we've only just seen we've only just seen this, like you said, half an hour ago.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it was quite it was quite a late announcement, to to be fair. Um, right. ju- just by reading reading it, it, it sounds like a positive thing. Obviously, it's going to be a positive thing. Um, global pandemic radar to identify and track new COVID variants and emerging diseases. I think the emerging diseases is a uh, very important, considering just how ill prepared as a as a country and 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 in the world, I suppose, um, we were for COVID nineteen. I think things like this are really essential um, as a surveillance network uh, going forward. And what the radar sort of consists of. Um, It's basically a pathogen surveillance network which will save lives and protect systems, the the press release says, and it will work by spotting diseases before they can cause future pandemics uh, and then help enable the rapid development of vaccines, treatments and tests. Um, This has come about after the Prime Minister has spoken to the World Health Organization um, and the Wellcome Trust as well and it's just ahead of the uh, the G7.
1: Yeah, that's the thing that makes uh, me a little bit sceptical in terms of the timing. I'm, when I was firstly reading this, I was thinking, well, why wasn't this established earlier? Because you've known about new variants for a while. This would have been perfect to fall under it, this re- remit. And it, it it just strikes again a political timing to me. Just a, a case of, well, this is a real priority for us ahead of this big event where we've got loads of people coming. Um earlier
0: <laughs> yeah I mean, um
1: things take time but just announce that you're establishing something earlier so you know we've got, you've got the wheels in motion
0: yeah i, I agree on the on, on the other hand there's always a um there's always a group of press people and pr specialists specialists who uh, are deciding when when the best time is to release things um and this would be the big one wouldn't it when it makes more sense but, and also, it depends on its stage of development as well. Is it is it literally just been a conversation between them to, to establish something, or is there actual groundwork that's been achieved sort uh, since then? Um yeah, so the, pan, I mean, I mean the pandemic radar, it's I mean yeah, the release really is a little bit bare in terms of details. Um, Shock. They do expect it to be fully up and running with a network of surveillance hubs before the end of the year. Um, so that's quite good. I'd like to see how that actually, um, you know, what both surveillance hub consists of a bit in a bit more detail.
1: And who does right it
0: report now. to? Sorry.
1: Who does it report to?
0: Um, I imagine it'll be the Welcome Trust and the World Health Organization, and it'll be a collaborative thing by UK uh, international health agencies to collect that data. Um, I imagine, and, but yeah, I'm not sure who actually oversees the majority of it. I assume. World Health Organization has, you know, teams of specialists who exam who could potentially examine rising variants or emerging diseases um you know, at like a single institution or a hub.
1: Yeah. Well the still uh, we just had a bone there, we need some meat on it. That's how our
0: pretty much, pretty much. But this
1: stopped. is you know,
0: like I like I mentioned earlier, definitely needed for just looking back at how COVID nineteen was handled and you know, how late some of the shutdowns were, the fact that travel was still permitted so long into the pandemic, all, you know, all these type of things. Um, things that we can learn from, and hopefully uh, this radar will help alleviate some of those concerns going forward.
1: Mm, you're on onto another part of the agenda here, which I haven't planned to talk about yet, but here we go anyway. <laughs> Public inquiry announcement. Hurrah! Uh, yeah,
0: Ian, do you want to cover this one. I think you know a little bit more about it than I do.
1: Well, I think this was after, was this after Prime Minister's questions, or was it an announcement after the Queen's speech? It was Boris Johnson saying that spring 2022 was the likely time for a full public inquiry to be established under the inquiries Act 2005, so it's likely to be chaired by a judge. So if you think of the inquiries in the past, like the Put an inquiry into Dr Kelly, the Chilgot inquiry into the Iraq war. You know, it'll be a bit like that. And I think anybody can be called and i would be very, very surprised if all the frontline politicians involved are not called. Um, I just wonder why now. Because if you actually have Richard Moody from uh, the King's Fund, he's the chief executive. He actually said, Now is the time to begin work on a public inquiry. The future course of COVID-19 remains uncertain and there is an ever-present risk of new diseases emerging. A thorough inquiry to ensure the country is ready to face future threats should not be shunted to the bottom of the government's to-do list. I think that's a very neat way of of summing it up. I mean, I I think there was, yet again, I think there's just more politics in this, is that he was trying to get ahead of the game, saying, well, I've announced when an inquiry is going to take place now. And then there has been all sorts about he doesn't want to distract health officials from dealing with the rest of the pandemic. Which for me, if they're learning the lessons as they go along, why can't something... And I think I've argued about this in my my editor's letter previously. There are so many strands and so many organisations that need to learn lessons from this. Can there not be an independent review in the meantime? Can there not be, you know... An inquiry that focuses on one area that moves on to the next so we're continuously you know refining and improving systems and then we get to the to the number of responsibility it's it, it baffles me that they just kick this down the road well it doesn't baffle me actually because i'm very very cynical about this government people are probably worked out who listen listened to this podcast but just come on and get it over and, and done with as soon as possible, or get started as soon as possible over and done with would be, you know it could take a long time this one
0: Yeah, it's difficult to disagree with anything from the King's Fund there and in, 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 in what you're seeing as well, Ian I think Johnson's just tried to score some political points there by announcing it, announcing it, like you've said Um and then at least people can argue, well, you know, an inquiry is getting done um, but that's about it for now
1: if you want some added scepticism from me, it'll be two and a half years into his term by then. If you think the inquiry is going to last about, hmm, I don't know, four and a half, five years, which isn't impossible, then. And they've just abolished the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. I reckon he's going to go for a general election as soon as the inquiry is underway. It wouldn't surprise me at all. You heard it here first, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> don't say I didn't warn you. <laughs> But uh, there is actually a very interesting rundown in the mirror as to how an inquiry could be covered. Uh, I think I may have touched on one or two points of this, so uh, this should uh, basically clarify anything I might have got wrong. Uh, it, it's basically what the probe will look like and how it will work. That's the headline. Um, because spring 2022 is when they start. Even that's vague. Spring 2022. I mean, there's, there's three
0: months there. Yeah, spring is an entire season to cover. Yeah. Um. <laughs> uh,
1: it's yet to be confirmed who will lead it, but the Prime Minister wants to ensure the right person is chosen. I'm getting strong, yes, Minister vibes here. um Number 10 has said that if invited, the Prime Minister will give evidence under oath. And the terms of reference have yet to be set out. I mean, that's key, actually. I'm I think once the terms of reference are published, there's there's going to be a uh, I think there's going to be more of that. Is regardless, just because of just how wide ranging this should be.
0: Well, yeah, it has to look into a lot of avenues for why. Uh, the UK's response was, uh, as such, for the COVID nineteen pandemic pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, procurement de- uh, deals, uh, PPE, uh, vac- vaccine conversations. You know, everything, health responses, travel shutdowns. God, you can you, you can just keep on going now.
1: Yeah, I mean, the mirror have got locking down, Kerr Homes, PPE, borders. Um, yeah. I think even now, widespread mask-wearing. Remember that? Remember when we were advised, oh, it won't make a difference, and so now we have to them going into shots? Eat yeah. out help uh, elbow. Test and oh, tricks. Yeah. Uh, that's just a few. That, <laughs> they're your starting points, though. Blimey, we could have a lot to talk about. It's
0: yeah, it's strange because right now, because of where the UK stands with its vaccination progress, it's almost as if you can look back and not realise what a shambles it was at the start.
1: Certainly, opinion polls will tell you that.
0: Really? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised by that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually referring to the headline voting intentions of political parties. Yeah. If the, those who follow me on Twitter will know I'm a bit of a, an opinion poll nerd. I actually did a dissertation on this. Um, but it's a case of you actually look at satisfied or unsatisfied with the government's pandemic response. Uh, the, there has been crossover to say it's positive again. Mm-hmm. The vaccination role, I think that's been borne out in local elections as well. I mean, Any further political discussion, tune into your uh, political podcast. This isn't one, though it gets dangerously close.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it almost gets there.
1: Sometimes it almost gets there. I think we try and stay on the right side of the line. It's just very hard to avoid at the moment. But
0: Yeah, it, well, it always is when it's uh, such... Well, you know, it's always going to encompass political uh, talk when it's something of, uh, of this magnitude.
1: Yeah, we'll go after politics for a second and then come back later because we've still got the social care aspect to cover. But I think you actually mentioned that AstraZeneca was in the news again this week.
0: Yeah, AstraZeneca is... It's- Having a hard time at the moment. I almost feel sorry for them.
1: I was about to say I feel sorry for.
0: them. Yeah, I, I can't really feel sorry for a company that size, but um, you know, I'm sure they're doing okay financially. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the um, yeah. So as of the 11th of May last 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 week, almost two weeks ago, uh, protesters gathered outside of their headquarters, um, as well as Oxford University. to demand that the company openly openly license its COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, demonstrations were organized by the um, organization Global Justice Now and it's you know in just in protest to their intellectual property sharing practices in regard to the COVID-19 vaccine and um, they want them to openly license the IP and commit to sharing technology and know-how with the World Health organization and they want the Oxford University to commit to making all of its future medical innovations. Uh, licensed as well. Um, basically, AstraZeneca is being targeted by Global Justice now because the company refused to join the WHO's COVID-19 Technology Access Pool, um, which was in which was developed, you know, prior well at the beginning of the pandemic to facilitate the sharing of technology and uh, in knowledge for vaccines and treatments. Also, the organisation is taking issue with the fact that um it estimates that ninety seven percent of the funding for the company's vaccine came from public sources and um, so a few things there what we were talking about earlier um just AstraZeneca got under in- increasing pressure once again um to to, to share that knowledge it has to, to help to try and help a global vaccine rollout despite the fact that you know it's one of the the prime companies. Manufacturing um, millions of doses of, of COVID nineteen vaccine.
1: It's a really thorny issue, this because it's a it's, yeah. there is a case of, of a common good. It'd be you know it'd be great if they could share information, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera, but there is obviously the money making aspect. I'm just wondering how you could possibly get a happy medium because the only thing I can think of is almost like a go between statutory regulator.
0: It's re- yeah, it's re- it's really tough. I think in pharma. Me- Medicine in, in in general, it's a really tough issue because you have companies working for the overall wellness of public health, right? Mm. And then you have a lot of questions into why they should be making money, or, you know, out, out of this. But at the same time, they have to put so much, so many resources and so much time into developing the R and D, finding the right candidate for drug drug discovery, um, which you know, ninety five percent. Fail to make it to market or something crazy like that Mm -hmm. so yeah really really tough issue um which is why i think when like, like i've indicated before when it's you know in times of a pandemic there needs to be potential other other avenues we can explore which don't depend so much on private organizations having so much control over it because then you're always going to get opposition to it i think the government needs to be able to have conversations with in not just our government but governments around the world of the World Health Organisation needs a better system in place to um, to be able to distribute vaccines uh, on an equitable basis
1: Yeah that has to be said in terms of when it comes to an overall look at this, I think it has to be looked in several different contexts, how individual yeah. countries have done this, how the World Health Organisation has approached things and literally, basically how everybody's approached it, mm-hmm. because this is a once in a lifetime thing. Everyone hopes, but I think we all know that we, we've lived in a world where SARS has come about, Ebola has come about, COVID has just been the one that's hit us worldwide.
0: Yeah, we've been very lucky in in, in that sense, and inevitably something like this will happen again. Whether it's you know ten years down the line, a hundred years down the line, I think now is the time to to learn some lessons from how each nation has, has has reacted and how the pharmaceutical companies have worked with governments and suppliers and whatnot, um, and just to look at the infrastructure overall to see how we can potentially combat it in the future. I know that's a very vague and non-answer as such, but um, you know now, now is the time to, to start to look properly at what we can do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, I think we're just going to put COVID to one side on this podcast now. I know it's e- easier said than done nowadays. Anyway, we'll uh, move on to um, social care in the Queen's Speech. The Queen's Speech was a little while ago for those listening. It was just after the um, just after the, the local elections in the UK. Um, but it was one thing that really caught everybody's eye was the lack of plan for social care despite Boris Johnson in 2019 standing on the steps of down the street saying there was a plan for social care that he was going to implement um, I think we've actually touched upon the disconnect between the NHS and social care before it's all well and good naming the department the Department for health and social care but you know, when the only mentions of social care in the, in the context are health. In, in the budget for example other the department's name then it, then it's a big worry um, the social care sector in the UK has been promised reform for many years I'm quoting here from pain checks founder Philip Davis. I've in, interviewed Paincheck a, co- a couple of times they have uh, an AI an powered pain assessment tool and um, They say it was long overdue before devastating impacts of the pandemic, which has sadly highlighted the lack of funding and strategic support it so deserves from central government. There was a call to obviously put technology being the foundation to rebuild the country's social care system. Uh... I mean, we—I think we're slightly biased in saying that we probably agree with that because we actually write about medical technology and pharmaceuticals. You know, it would—it uh, <laughs> it, keeps—it keeps us in the job if uh, if technology was um, the uh, the foundation of any kind of health and social care evil. But are you as alarmed as I am when it comes to um, that the social care is almost feels like it's being treated as second class? It's,
0: yeah, it's just there's just no strategy there. What would you see from from government? Even even despite the fact that social care was this massive problem during the pandemic, right? Yeah. Um, you know, care homes massively affected. Miscommunication between patients getting admitted to care homes following um, diagnosis from COVID and stuff like that. So, just this you know this this should be right now prior, priority for for reform. I think. Um, especially when the government, you know, going on about or oh, trying to attract more nurses to the NHS, we're trying to build all these new, build all these new hospitals, um, quote unquote, build, yeah, yeah, um, and the fact that social care is just not even given a mention is just embarrassing.
1: I've heard in the past, you know, certain policy proposals of integration, of, but given that, I think given that they've been running on two separate tracks for a while, that's obviously going to take you know, a considerable amount of time, because that'll be another reorganisation of the NHS. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, Matt Hancock has, uh, seems to have published a white paper which discusses a, another reorganisation of the NHS, and it doesn't seem to actually bring social care into the fold half as much as it should do.
0: No, it's the argument very bad. It's just, it's, you know, the NHS is just this unfathomable beast, which is quite difficult to, to organise at the best of times, and bringing social care into it is nigh on impossible, or the fact that maybe just the infrastructure for the NHS is unruly and we need sort of better I don't know, better technology, just a better better oversight of the whole thing um, it's tough
1: Yeah, I mean I don't envy anyone sorting it out but if you promise something at least put something down on paper
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree with that social care was made into a big issue when in 2019 by by the Conservatives Mm-hmm. Um, so the fact that they're not following up on that At all <laughs> In any meaningful way Is quite uh, disappointing
1: Yeah, um, I'll this is actually a pretty good time To bring in the Nuffield Trust reaction The Deputy Director of Policy, Natasha Curry Said Further delay to social care reform is a betrayal of the promises made by this government in its manifesto to give people who need care the dignity and security they deserve. From the absence of any detail included in the speech today, I'm not obviously referring to the Queen's speech at the time, it seems the commitments from the Prime Minister are becoming vaguer as time goes on. Yeah, I've heard that one before as well. And if you continue adding on, the... NHS bill included today has the potential to bring together health and social care services more closely. The pandemic has shown why that is important. But the NHS has been through many restructures before.
0: Yeah, I mean just outside of the pandemic as well look at the, um, the argument for longevity in the ageing population, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Massive, massive health costs come from um, you know el- el- elderly citizens for chronic diseases and just more, more doctor's appointments stuff like that, right? Um, so why wouldn't it? It makes sense for the government to make it a priority because it benefits the overall economy if you can help that sector section of the population more as, t- as time goes on. And we're going to need to as well. The whole world's going to need to because the aging population is a massive thing, right? People living longer, etc.
1: Yeah, I think... Uh, I actually think there is a will to sort it out. I just don't think they know what to do.
0: <laughs> Sounds about right.
1: But I have a little bit of sympathy on a level because is it a case of are you going to try and bring it together as one system? Are you you trying to operate it as two systems, or are you going to have a point system in the middle to operate between the a national health service and a national care service? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've I I am aware that I have oversimplified that somewhat, but I think that's what will end up. That's what they will boil down to when they actually think about a structure of integrating health and care.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And if you look at the problems there for communicating between the two systems and how unreliable certain systems, of course, the NHS can be in terms of IT, for instance, then it becomes an even bigger beast of, you know, I think... There's all these ideas about how technology can make the communication of, of medical data e- easier, easier, but how do you implement that on such a massive scale? And then across two different organisations as well.
1: This feels like a massive podcast series that we probably should record one day. So if anybody wants to get in touch with us, feel free, because this, co- <laughs> this, <Yeah. laughs> this, could, go, this could go on for years and years, really. Maybe
0: tell us where we're going long as well, because I have no idea how to how to even approach us.
1: Well, that, that's the reason that we're not in government. Yeah, yeah. we're acutely aware of we don't know how to sort this out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, shall we move on? Because we've actually had a, a book to review, this. Um, we have. I, I mean, the digital pill what everyone should know about the future of our healthcare system. Um, I've managed to read. Up until digital therapeutics, actually, and I believe that you've been reading on the drug development side of it because, you know, that's your domain. Uh, yeah,
0: I, th- I think I've read about 75 percent of this book now. Um, I've just reached the um, the last part, and um, well, first of all, it, um, we'll introduce the authors. It's by Elgar Fleisch, Christoph Franz, and Andreas Herman, and it's basically, you know. It's almost what we've covered for years, Ian, isn't it? Um, it's a su- succinct type of overview of the digital health industry and sort of how it's affecting healthcare. Um, how have you got on with it so far, Ian? How, how do you How do you like it? Do you dis- any parts you dislike, etc.?
1: I don't really have much to argue with. With you, there. I mean? I think this is actually probably a good point to say. If anybody would like to picture stories on our, on our respective websites, read this book <laughs> honestly, because it it, it literally is. You know, what we cover. Uh, yeah. there, there are a couple of things that I would, in the forward, for example, it said with the health of apps, digital physician assistance, automated mini clinics, telemedicine, etc. going forward, many more people, regardless of where they live and what financial means are at their disposal, got to have access to affordable and effective medical care. The This is, I think, I think I'm right in saying that in most of this book, it is predominantly US focused. We are introduced to, a lots of examples of, of people having to you know, I think facing health insurance problems in, in America basically when they come up against life-threatening conditions and some of it is actually are pretty heartbreaking and it actually, there were a couple of instances where I just thought thank Christ for the NHS and let's hope it's around forever and ever quite frankly yeah. um, it, is for, it? for all its faults for all its faults, it's principled now for the beast of an organisation, it is as we've said. Set, set the principle of healthcare at the point of delivery—that's free—is absolutely vital for for society. Really, because some of the stories were—I I, don't—I didn't think I was expecting to get teary. A couple of points in this book.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, there's examples of people having to all you know losing their jobs and their health insurance, um, and just not being able to afford afford the treatments that they're given. People and. Cancer patients not being able to afford the oncology ne- needed. Um yeah, the oncology work needed. Uh after the chemotherapy, sorry, for oncology. Um totally forgot what well, that disease every year was.
1: <laughs> um me but, of his again. <laughs>
0: <yeah>. <laughs> um but I mean the one thing I found interesting about this book was was how it sort of um the begin the beginning of it underlines the issue of where we are as a population with our with our overall health i, I suppose um how we're becoming more of an aging population how we're all getting older in the rise of non-communicable diseases and chronic conditions which are adversely affecting the healthcare costs which are delivered Um which you know the long the longer you have to be treated for 30, 40 years if you've got a chronic condition then the cost of our treatment Rapidly increases, and it's something like, you know, forty four hundred billion dollars, or something crazy, that's being spent on 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 these areas now across across the globe. Um, you know, that's going to rise continuously as if if the population rises as well, and if we're all all living longer. Um, that's going to increase a lot. But where the technology comes in, in, in into this is the fact that well, these technology really give this agency to the patients and how we can increase our breadth of of medical knowledge and and try to live an overall better life. And it's, you know, about how medical data is filtered into the clinician um, to give a more holistic example of the patient. I mean, if I've got any issue with with the book itself, it's almost too broad to cover into one, single conversation if you if yeah. you understand me so it doesn't really have it has an underlying thread of where the healthcare industry is going to but it doesn't it sometimes goes off in tangents about just off oh, as this company which is doing this amazing artificial intelligence work and then it'll get you to the point about patient adherence with digital medication and stuff like that um so it's it's really interesting as a, as a whole and like ian, like you were saying ian it's i think it's a really good starting point for a lot of people who maybe want to get a, a good Really good, I should say, overall look at the industry. and Because it covers so much, a little bit too much, I would, I would say. I think I'd, I'd rather have it boiled down to a more concise point. But that's just you know, it's personal preference.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm actually staggered that they, they managed to cover so much within, I think, was it, circa 200 pages. Which, yeah. I, 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 which is absolutely staggering, really. The thing that I actually took from it was when, at the start, because the first chapter is titled Medical Progress as a Success Story. But within that, I think it actually identifies that when when it comes to progress, and then when when progress arrives, and then you you've solved one problem, inevitably another comes up. It's like a whack-a-mole. Yeah, it, it's and that's where the non-communicable diseases strain in the healthcare system comes into it because probably well, because fewer people had them, because you know say 50, 60 years ago because. We weren't living as long in the first place. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the, the bits, are, I mean, they highlight the progression of antibiotics, diagnostics, vaccinations. I think are <laughs> they are pertinent during these times in particular because I think certainly they probably weren't used by a lay person as much as they are today.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. But you know, those things are more in the conversation for public knowledge than ever now. I would say, potentially arguing against antibiotics um, and in the problems that the use of them and the things with it. But you know, vaccines certainly COVID nineteen has brought about a massive conversation for people there. And um, you know, like I was saying, just the the rise of technology and the way that. We all live digital lives, and now is increasingly playing playing a bigger part in how we and how clinicians manage manage patients and man, and, and start to look at diseases differently. Um, you know, there's a bit, there's a bit towards the, the end of the book where it starts to look at precision medicine and just how the um, the global genome project has managed to, you know, deliver insights into into the, into the human anatomy. So now we, we can target specific. Um, tumors, for instance, you know, specific st- strands of, of a body with um with drugs which we know work against those um those biomarkers. So, yeah, really a really big breadth of knowledge um there, and I'm, I'm going to finish it up this weekend actually, just to um just so I can say I've actually read the whole thing um because it wouldn't be fair. But definitely, if you're interested in the space, if you're interested in digital health in particular, and just overall. Technological achievements and advancements that are being made, and um, definitely check out the digital pill. It's published by Emerald Publishing. Um, for anyone who wants to know, uh, give it a look, give it a read.
1: Yeah, there's one thing that I will add to that is the uh, there, are, there are a couple of interesting. It makes you actually think about how you restructure the system as well as mm. how you include digital technology into it. There's actually a chapter there where it comes upon to monitoring uh, certain parts of your health. This actually brings us on nicely to something that I've been doing off and on for the past six weeks or so is that I've been trialling the Actia blood pressure monitor. Unfortunately, I did not have it on for my, uh, for my journey to the ground after my vaccination because that would have actually brought upon some interesting readings I imagine but the the way that it works is that you have initial blood pressure reading, you put your hands on say you sat on an upright position, you put your hands on the desk and it measures you. that's the reading it, it goes from and then with a wrist watch type device it then has a continuous measurement of uh, your blood pressure and it's connected via Bluetooth to my phone so there's, there's several graphs on there mm-hmm. one thing that was actually quite stark about it I thought is that I've had in the past, a lot of high blood pressure readings. But I think I've, a couple of things have happened. They don't go to the doctor nearly as much because i have changed my diet. Now, I'm wondering if it's a case of, mm, is it white coat syndrome when I go to the doctors, or is it the fact that I'm healthy, or is it both?
0: I would say it's a bit of both. Um, white coat syndrome, for anyone who doesn't know what to... You know, when you go into a medical setting like a doctor's and you get your blood pressure taken, or a health test, you are inevitably going to be affected by stress factor in a in a doctor's office or something so it might be the fact that your blood pressure is higher because you're nervous about getting your blood pressure taken and it you know doesn't really give a po- um a complete picture of how your blood pressure is and you know on an everyday level um yeah maybe maybe it's a little bit both definitely you know if you change if you change your diet and are eating better then that's gonna massively affect them um, <laughs> yeah affect your body o- o- overall and your blood pressure so uh, you know, maybe 90% of that, 10% sitting, sitting at home doing it.
1: Maybe that. But uh, yep. I, I will have a uh, review for this on uh, MedTech Innovation News in the near future when I get time to write things down because it has been an incredibly busy period. I only wish that I had it on before, during, and after my vaccination, though, because that would have been some wrath.
0: It, yeah, it would have been for one massive uh, dip.
1: <laughs> dip, spike, whatever. <laughs>
0: be interesting to know how, how uh, yeah, just seeing before before it happened, I, I think that might be the most interesting part.
1: Yeah, because...
0: Is it a gradual drop? Does it just suddenly dip?
1: Yeah, I'm actually trying to work this out in my head about how it, how it took place, but enough about me. Um uh, We'll be sure to uh, record a podcast episode after Visa has, has his first job so he can embarrass me by saying that he's not fainting. He has had no side effects whatsoever.
0: And... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no phobia of needles, or I don't, I don't like blood to be to, to be honest. So, um, so lucky. Yeah, That's a lot uh, of it, phobias also.
1: Yeah. Anyway, I think that's it from us this week. Uh, we'll probably be back in another couple of weeks' time with yet more news because the news keeps on coming in life sciences. But uh, all it leaves me to say is thank you to Vice for your company for the last half hour, albeit still virtually. Nice, nice catching up again, Ian. uh, It has been, and thank you to you for listening. That's been the MedTech Podcast.